Chapter 9 Sheila Feinberg paced back and forth next to the cool brick wall of the big stone-floored empty warehouse. She slipped off her new low-heeled leather shoes. It felt better to have the pads of her feet touching the floor. Where did they go? she demanded. I traced them to the colony days in, a man said. When he spoke, the other eight people inside the garage looked at him. They all squatted on the floor in a semicircle as Sheila paced in front of them. And, she said, They are gone from there, the man said. He yawned, a large yawn, not a single not a signal of fatigue, instead the gulping demand of more oxygen typical of large animals which do not get enough exercise. Where did they go? Sheila asked. She turned toward the wall as if counting the bricks, scratched down them with her fingernails in a brief show of anger, then wheeled around. We have to get them, she said. That's all. We have to get them. I want that young one. If only Hallahan hadn't fallen off that roof. He could find out. I found out, said the man with a brief display of pique. Sheila spun her head toward him as if he were attacking her. He met her eyes for a moment, then settled deeper onto his haunches and lowered his head. He spoke without looking up. They took the cab to the Massachusetts Turnpike and transferred to a limousine. I talked to the driver of the cab. The limousine was from Boston and was headed south. I have to wait for the limousine driver to get back to find out where he took them. Stay with it, Sheila ordered curtly. She added, I know you'll do a good job. The man looked up, smiled contentedly, as if someone had stroked his neck. It was good to be noticed and praised, especially by the leader of your pack. It might even mean that night he would get his first feeding rights, before all the good parts were gone. Chapter 10 The sun poured in through the one-way window of the hospital room. Beyond the window were the dark grey waters of Long Island Sound. Now as flat as slate on a typical breezeless, airless New York City day. The humidity made people on the street feel as if a, t a towel had been pulled from boiling water and dropped on their faces. Inside the room was the coolness of an air conditioner. As Remo woke up, he noticed it and noticed also that for the first time in years... He did not smell the faint charcoal flavor that air conditioning pumped into one's lungs. He blinked his eyes and looked around. Smith was sitting in the chair alongside his bed. He looked relieved to see Remo awake. His usual pinched lemon look was replaced by the look of a lemon that had not yet been cut or squeezed. For Smith, whole lemon was happy. Pinched, twisted, cut, squeezed, and juiced lemon was normal. You don't know how much fun it is to wake up and see you sitting there, 
said Remo, surprised by the thickness of his own voice. He usually didn't sleep that heavy. I mean, some people wake up and see the woman they love, or the surgeon who just saved their lives after a four-day operation. I see you sitting there like a boa constrictor waiting to corner a mouse. It fills the heart with cheer. I've seen your wounds, said Smith. You're lucky to see anyone. Oh, those, said Remo. Chion took care of him. He looked again around the room. Where is he anyway? He went down to the gymnasium. He said something about wanting to see the place where everything started to go wrong for him. I think it was the gymnasium where you two first met. Smith said dryly. Yeah, well, forget that. Listen, have you got a cigarette? Sorry, I don't smoke. I gave it up when the Surgeon General's report came out. I thought you represented all the danger to my health I could handle. It's nice to be home, Remo said. Holler, holler out in the hall and get me a cigarette, will you? Since when have you been smoking? On and off, every so often, Remo lied. He really wanted a cigarette and could not understand why. It had been years since he smoked. Years of training had finally brought him to understand breathing was everything. All the tricks, all the magic, all the skill of Sin and Jew were built on breathing. Without it, nothing was possible. With it, nothing was impossible. The first thing one learned was not to breathe smoke. But he wanted the cigarette, nevertheless. Smith nodded and went into the hall. While he was gone, Remo inspected the room. He realized, with a little shock, it was the same one in which he had awakened after being saved from the gimmicked electric chair. Sentiment. For old time's sake, not from Smitty, Remo was in that room because that room had been vacant. If the only vacancy had been in the boiler room, Remo would have been sleeping in the furnace between shovels of coal. It was the usual hospital room, white, one bed, one chair, one bureau, one window. But the window was a sheet of one-way glass through which Remo could see. But which was a mirror from the outside. Smith came back with two cigarettes. You owe them to the nurse in the hall. I told her you'd give them back to her. She said it was all right, but I told her you'd return them tomorrow. By the way, she thinks your name is Mister Wilson, and that Chion is your valet. Don't tell him that, Remo said, and yanked the cigarettes from Smith's hand. One slipped and fell to the floor. Remo put the filled cigarette to his mouth. Smith lit it from a book of matches that had that had exactly two matches. Remo wondered sometimes if the man was human. Two cigarettes, two matches. Smith could have taken an hour walking the corridors looking for somebody with a free pack of matches with only two matches left in it. 
Remo took his first huge inhale as Smith retrieved the other cigarette from the floor and put it, along with the remaining match, in the bureau next to Remo's bed. The first taste made Remo cough. Had it always tasted so bad? He knew it had. Back when he had been smoking, he often quit, sometimes for weeks at a time. That first puff when he weakened and went back was always a choking cough producer. Like the buddy's last shout of warning before surrender. The second puff was better and halfway through the cigarette it was as if he had never stopped, not even for an hour. It was that way again. Try to get me a pack, will you? Remo said. Put it on my room bill. I'll see what I can do, Smith said, then briefed Remo on what was happening in Boston. The killings were continuing. Police had shot one of the Tiger people. It was a housewife. Unfortunately, she died, so we didn't get a chance to study her and see if there's an antidote. That's a shame, Remo said. Now they're screaming for massive federal intervention. And with you and Chayan out of it, I guess there's no alternative. What happened to you anyway? asked Smith. I was in a car with one of them. I think it was Sheila, baby. Even though she looked different, she slashed my throat and tried to rip my stomach. She did a pretty good job. What about her? I bopped her up some, but she got away, Remo said. Smith felt a weight plummet from his gullet into his stomach. Remo was his best and had almost, had almost been killed. What hope did anyone have? There was no limit to the number of tiger people Sheila Feinberg could make. Now, each one of her pack was a new source of genetic material for others. The only way out would be to kill all the pack and make sure to eliminate Sheila Feinberg. Without her scientific knowledge, the geometric progression would stop. But who could do it? If not Remo, who? Martial law, if imposed, was hardly likely to turn up Sheila and her tiger people. They looked like ordinary humans. FBI agent Hallahan proved that. On the day he had tried to kill Remo and Chayan, he had been working at his desk, just as he had every other day. But if they weren't stopped and soon before long, it would not just be Boston in peril. They could get in a car or on a plane and go anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. You couldn't put the whole planet Earth under martial law. And even if you could, it probably wouldn't work. The key was getting Sheila Feinberg first. That would stop the creation of new monsters. Then, the existing ones could be hunted to the ground, slowly but surely. Are you going to get back after her? Smith asked. Will you be able to? Huh? said Remo. He had not been listening. He was watching smoke rise from the glowing tip of the cigarette, savoring the taste. Can you go back after Feinberg, I said. I don't know, Remo said. I'm pretty weak, 
I seem to have lost my edge. I don't think Chayan would let me go. He's pretty spooked about some kind of legend. Chayan is always disturbed about some legend or other, Smith said. Even if I found her again, I don't know what I could do with her, Remo said. I couldn't get her the last time. You could call for help, Smith said. Remo looked at him angrily for a moment, as if Smith had attacked his competence. Then the look faded. After all, why not call for help? If he ever met Sheila again, he would need it. I don't know, Smitty, he said. Why did they come after you anyway? Smith asked. I mean, they shouldn't have thought you, were po- you posed some kind of special threat to them, even after you wounded Feinberg. Why not just leave you alone? If they're really animals, revenge doesn't make any sense. That's human, not animal. Animals escape danger. They don't go back just to get even. Maybe they just like me. Me and my winning ways, Remo said. Dubious, dubious, highly dubious, Smith said as Remo sucked one last lungful of smoke. Saw the cigarette's glow reach the plastic filter which melted from white threads into dried tan glue and stubbed the bud out in the ashtray. I'll leave you now, said Smith. Don't forget that pack of cigarettes. Remo said, but Smith did not hear him. He was staring at a problem to which he already knew the answer, but did not want to face. He was hunting the Sheila Feinberg pack, and the pack was hunting, hunting Remo. To get them, he would have to use Remo as bait. It was clear and logical, and left no alternatives. It was It was risk Remo or risk the rest of the country, the rest of the world. Smith knew what he had to do. It was what he had always done, his duty. The trap was set with a classified advertisement in the Boston Times. SF patient is at Fullcroft Rye. There was little subtlety about the trap, and when one of her packs showed the ad to Sheila Feinberg, she knew it for what it was. It's a trap, she said. So we'll ignore it, said the other woman, a buxom brunette with narrow hips and long legs. There is plenty of meat in Boston. But the age-old instinct of survival, before all else, gave way in Sheila Feinberg to another instinct, the longing to reproduce one's kind. She smiled sweetly at the woman, showing long white teeth that looked as if they had been polished by chewing through soft bone, and said, No, we won't ignore it. We will go. I want that man.